Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. In this episode, my guest is David Feidler, the author of Breakfast with Seneca, a stoic guide to the art of living. Today's episode is a rebroadcast since we're exploring David's book this month for Reading in the Good Life. Anyone not familiar, you can learn more and sign up for Reading in the Good Life at Perennial Meditations on Substack. I'll put a link in the show notes. A little background on our guest, David studied ancient religions and philosophies, the history of science, and holds a PhD in philosophy and intellectual history. You can learn more about his work in the world at davidfeidler.com. In the conversation today, David and I discuss the life of Seneca, cultivating friendship, navigating hardships, overcoming fear and anxiety, wisdom in daily life, and much more. All right, without any further delay, please welcome the wise and gracious David Feidler. All right. Well, David, thank you so much for coming on In Search of Wisdom. Thank you, Joshua. It's uh, really great to uh, be here and to uh, speak with you. Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure. I've been looking forward to this one. Um, I've not a, a super longtime fan of Seneca, but definitely a big fan in the last couple of years of Seneca. So seeing this book come out uh, was was really great for me. But how does it feel for you to have Breakfast with Seneca, this book that you've been working on for a long time out in the world here today? Well, it's a relief. And <laughs> uh, it's also encouraging because uh, there seems to be quite a bit of interest in the book. It was uh, positively reviewed in the New York Times and Publishers Weekly. and. Uh, it's currently a uh, number one uh, hot new release in ancient Greek philosophy on Amazon. If there is such a thing, maybe that's an oxymoron, <laughs> but uh, people are reading it and it's getting some good reviews. Well, I love that. That is great news. And reading it and listening to it myself, uh, no, no surprise because it's, it's really well done. So congratulations for that. Um, I wanted to start a question that we ask many people that have a PhD in philosophy, if there was anything that initially started this search for wisdom, I'm really curious of, you know, how did you know to embark on a PhD in philosophy and that that was the path for you? Well, that's a really good question. Uh, I've been interested in philosophy and science uh, my entire life. Ever since I was a kid, I was interested in astronomy, and I was really deeply into it. It, it just uh, captivated me. And then as I got older, I kept studying ancient Greek philosophy, Plato, uh, of course, Socrates, and I studied ancient philosophy and uh, ancient religions in school. And I had some exposure to the Stoics, then I read Marcus Aurelius when I was in my 20s, a lot of different things. And 
I started a publishing company. I used to publish books actually relating to ancient philosophy. And at a certain point in my life, uh, I really seriously considered either becoming a psychotherapist or doing a PhD in philosophy. And I, I chose philosophy because um, there were a number of reasons, but uh, I thought it might be better for speaking to a larger audience rather than just speaking with people on a one-on-one -on -one basis. But uh, I was very uh, interested in the relationship between like worldview and culture and the mechanistic worldview of the scientific revolution because uh, before that, uh, philosophers and other thinkers had seen the world and the universe as resembling more of an organism. And with the mechanistic worldview, uh, it really ch changed the entire way that we looked at the world and also the way that we related to other people. So I decided to do a PhD in philosophy so that I could uh, write a book about that, which was like my dissertation. And I thought that was a very important way for philosophy to contribute to the world. If you could think back maybe early on, was there any, any books or moments or ideas that piqued your curiosity to, to, you know, study further? Yeah, I think actually um, it had to do with my own relationship with nature because I grew up in an unusual location surrounded by 20 acres, you know, overlooking a lake. So uh, I was very fortunate in retrospect, I think, in that way. And I was just always intrigued by the workings of, of nature. And uh, Socrates said that wonder is the beginning of all philosophy. And so that was my uh, segue into philosophy. It was the sense of wonder that I experienced, like contemplating the stars and the planets and uh, birds and things like that. So having that direct experience of nature. And of course, science and philosophy were always interrelated. They didn't separate out until, you know, really like probably a couple hundred years ago. And yeah. science used to be called natural philosophy. So it was the Greek philosophers who, who studied or uh, started the study of, of nature that actually became science. So so to transition into the, the book and, and Seneca as a figure, for someone listening that may be not familiar with Seneca, you know, who, who was he and why is he a kind of perennial figure and someone that you decided to, to write a book of, about his philosophy? Right. Well, uh, Seneca, he was like one of the big three uh, Roman Stoic philosophers. So uh, he was really the first major Roman Stoic philosopher whose writings have come down to us. And he was followed by Epictetus and then by Marcus Aurelius. So uh, the, the three of them basically represent the totality of what we know about Roman Stoicism, you know, during that time period with, you know, the exception of some minor figures. And I was really attracted to Seneca because um, when I started reading his writings, uh, which uh, I didn't start reading Seneca, I'm, uh, I mean, I, I've been reading ancient philosophy, you know, since my, my teens, actually, but I only started uh, reading Seneca like 15 years ago. And the thing that really attracted to me, attracted me to him is that I found that when I read what he had to say that he actually knew what he was talking about and to uh, hear this kind of voice that was so uh, humane 
and well-informed about the human condition. It was an immediate draw to me, along with his writing style, which is really incredible. Uh, so it was a combination of, of those things. And it was also his uh, obvious you know, concern for humanity as well. And the fact that he was really writing about human life, because, for example, if you do get a PhD in philosophy, people tend to do very hyper-specialized work, which I kind of uh, recoil against, but that's the pattern. And so when you do that kind of work, it actually separates you from people. And the thing that I like about Seneca is that he's not specialized in that way. He's talking about real day-to-day -day human concerns things that people, you know, face, you know, on a daily basis. And you mentioned those, the big three, I guess, if you will, Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, and, and Seneca of the Roman Stoics. You write in the book how much of, of Greek Stoic writing is lost, but, you know, Seneca is this person that we have a kind of nearly complete uh, collection of, of his philosophy. I was wondering if you could provide a bit of context around the volume of, of Seneca's writing that we have and that you've been digging into for many years. Most of Seneca's philosophical writings have come down to us, and you know it's literally hundreds of pages. And because of that, I think people have not generally uh, considered the idea of writing an introduction to his ideas like uh, Breakfast with Seneca is, uh, because it's a very daunting undertaking because he talks about the same ideas, but it's like spread over hundreds of pages. So that did require a lot of work. And because I uh, really admire Seneca, I was very careful not to leave out anything of uh, importance. So I wanted it to be both a clear and reliable guide to his ideas. But one of the things that's really interesting about all of his writings, for example, he wrote like letters of consolation, uh, they were actually like essays of consolation to friends of his who were experiencing grief because of the death of a loved one. And he wrote more theoretical works on philosophy. He wrote uh, about the natural world. And he wrote his famous uh, Letters to Lucilius, which everyone is pretty much familiar with. That was one of his last works. But the thing that's really interesting about Seneca is that he didn't see philosophy as a detached ivory tower. Uh, type of pursuit. Rather, um, if you're a beginning reader of Seneca, you might easily overlook this fact if you start reading all of his different writings. But every single thing that he wrote philosophically was addressed to either a friend or a family member. So he saw philosophy as being based on person-to-person -person relationships. And it seems, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but he did see these letters as something that would kind of stand the test of, of time. It maybe wasn't when we think of, of writing a quick email to a friend, maybe not a tremendous amount of thought behind it. But I wonder if you could kind of speak to that. He, he, he definitely felt that there was a, a good deal of wisdom in this and that it would stand the test of time. Well, he wrote the letters really at the end of his life. And um, he had worked for the Emperor Nero, which wasn't a very good uh, relationship uh, to be in. Uh, the Emperor Nero uh, ended up having Seneca commit suicide, which was uh, 
the least awful form of execution. But Nero killed a lot of people, including his brother, his mother, his uh, first wife, and probably dozens of other people as well, including other family members uh, of Seneca's. But uh, he was doing this at the end of his life, and I think he had reached the point where uh, he realized that the political establishment of his time was so corrupt, there was nothing that he could do. It was incredibly dangerous to be around these uh, Roman emperors. Nero wasn't the only one who engaged in this kind of activity by mm. any means. Seneca had been exiled to uh, Corsica by Claudius on trumped-up charges, and Caligula supposedly wanted to kill him because he was jealous of Seneca. You know, there are all these stories that have come down. Certainly he was exiled to Corsica for, for eight years, and then he was called back to Rome to be the tutor of Nero. But it's really amazing because I think he regretted his relationship with Nero because obviously being around someone like that would have some kind of harmful uh, effect on on anyone. And he wanted to make up for the lost time. He had some obvious regrets about working for Nero. And one of the most remarkable things that he says in the letters is he said, I'm actually writing, he, he was writing to his friend Lucilius, and he said, uh, I'm writing for future generations. I'm doing this work for future generations, and I'm going to take your name along with mine to the future. And it's really amazing because that was a very, very bold claim for Seneca to make, and it actually came true. So it's really astonishing. He, I think he had some uh, kind of precognition that uh, he was creating a work that people would find to be helpful. And actually, in the Renaissance, they had all of his uh, writings because they were in Latin. And I've been doing quite a bit of work in the Renaissance recently, and he was incredibly influential. In fact, the founder of Renaissance humanism uh, wrote a letter to Seneca. He wrote a letter to Seneca's ghost, actually, and he said, Seneca, you wouldn't believe how much I listen to your words every day. So he was actually doing the same kind of little ritual that I was. He was having his breakfast with Seneca and reading a little bit of Seneca every day. So that was quite shocking when I discovered that. <laughs> but uh, he was conscious of the fact that his work had the potential to reach future generations. And now it's 2,000 years later, and his so-called letters from a Stoic, you know, are, you know, bestsellers. It's unbelievable. Yeah. How do you think about suffering and, and wisdom? As you mentioned, Seneca was no stranger to... To suffering, I guess, if if you will, being exiled for for eight years. If I read correctly, I think that was shortly after the death of his only child. You know, how do you see that that connection and influence? Well, it's interesting because uh, one of the big themes in Seneca's writings, he certainly didn't make this up. It was a you know a theme of uh, the Stoicism of the time is how to deal with adversity and how to uh, take uh, negative events and find value in them. And it is very interesting, you know, when you look at his life, because Caligula wanted to kill him. Uh, he was exiled by Claudius to uh, Corsica for eight years. 
that was only two as as you mentioned that was only two weeks after his only uh child died as a baby and he lost half his wealth when that happened and then you know he had to endure you know the madness of of nero as well i think that uh he stayed with nero because he wanted to have some kind of positive impact on nero's character if possible, you know, or steer him in a better direction. At a certain point, it became obvious that that was just totally impossible. But Seneca himself did experience a lot of suffering. And uh, he found his Stoic philosophy to be an incredible resource in terms of, uh, you know, being able to deal with that and uh, make some sense out of it. Mm. A a previous episode, a a few months back, we had Catherine Wilson on, the author of How to Be an Epicurean. And you you have a chapter that really differentiates nicely between Stoicism and, and that philosophy. But I, I asked her a question if if she was able to grab a cup of coffee with Epicurus, what would she ask? And her question was around this idea of, you know, uh opting out. Can we really opt out of of public life as um as they they highlighted, and obviously the Stoics had a, a very different view on that. But is there any question that comes to mind for you that that you might ask Seneca if you were able to to grab a, a nice breakfast with him? I think it would just be very interesting to have a you know conversation with him, and it'd be uh, interesting to uh, discover why he went into politics. I mean the. The, the the Greek Stoics recommended that they said that you, unless something prevents you, sh- you should go into politics. And he was one of the few Stoics that did. None of the Greek Stoics actually did. So he followed, um, you know, their injunction to do that. But I'm not sure that uh, that's something that a modern Stoic would really want to consider. It might be actually a very bad use of your time because. In the time that Seneca was living, politics was really the only way that you could have any influence in society. And now, if someone were to go into politics, I'm not sure it would be an equivalent kind of uh, situation because there are many, many uh, you know different ways that people can contribute to society. In fact, that's a chapter in the book is uh, how to be authentic and contribute to society. And you know, Seneca in the end realized that living the active uh, political life under the kind of uh, regime that Nero was running was actually not uh, something that he could do any longer and that it was much more uh, useful for him to write for future generations and to, you know, write uh, for people who could, you know, actually benefit from his wisdom. Nero was pretty young when Seneca was called back to to be the advisor or or a mentor to him. It probably looked like a a feasible task to to be successful at. He was called back to Rome when he was around 53 by Nero's mother uh, Agrippina to tutor Nero and at the time Nero was only 11 years old and Nero became emperor at age 16, like right before he turned 17, he was almost 17, but he was still only like 16. And obviously at that age, he was not competent to run the Roman Empire. So um, there are quite a few people that think that actually Seneca 
and uh, Burrus, who was the head of the Praetorian Guard, ran the Roman Empire for like the first five years of Nero's reign. And then at a certain point, um, Burrus died. And mm. at that point, Seneca was in trouble because uh, he had been uh, totally unsuccessful in terms of uh, helping Nero become a virtuous person. <laughs> it was like one of those, yeah. uh, you know, lost causes. And then when Nero was a bit older and started to assert his power, he became very murderous and started killing people. So uh, that wasn't uh, very uh, encouraging to Seneca, I'm sure. But uh, it's the kind of activity, actually, that Nero's mother engaged in and Claudius engaged in and Caligula. So unfortunately, it was just part of the uh, way that... Uh, the political scene operated in those days. Maybe we can transition into some of the lessons from uh, from some of the chapters in the book, and we'll we'll go go through a few of these. And one that comes up is is friendship. What can we learn from Seneca on the topic of friendship? Friendship was very important to him, and uh, he writes about friendship uh, quite a lot in uh, the early letters to Lucilius, and. Um, you can see that these person-to-person -person relationships were very important for Seneca because, uh, as I mentioned uh, a bit earlier, all of his writings are addressed to different friends or family members of his. So he saw uh, a person-to-person -person relationship as being very important in uh, philosophy and Stoic philosophy in particular because the one of the main aims of uh, Roman Stoic philosophy was to develop a better character. And that's very hard to do in isolation. And he also wrote about how the people close to us can uh, influence our characters uh, unconsciously, uh, either for uh, the ill or for the good. So he felt that it was very important to uh, seek out friends who have good characters because those good qualities that they have will uh, rub off on you in some way. Hmm. Another topic that comes up, it, it seems so much in, in his writing and is maybe most popular, the, the on the shortness of life, this idea of time, us waste, wasting time and time passing through our, our carelessness. Uh, could you speak a bit about that? Right. That was uh, one of his favorite themes. And uh, when he was younger, he wrote this book. Uh, called On the Shortness of Life. And I think he may have written that when he was actually engaged in helping to run the Roman Empire. So he would have been very busy. And he was an uh, extreme critic of busyness for the sake of being busy or busyness for the sake of display because sometimes people just run around and act busy, but they don't accomplish anything of substance. And for Seneca, time was our greatest uh, asset. But uh, while people will look over their financial assets or their property or whatever, a lot of people really don't care about how they spend their time. And Seneca said that if you don't pay some attention to that, it will just slip away. And then you'll end up at the end of your life having wasted your life away and wondering where everything went. 
and then it's too late to do something more meaningful. So he actually starts off uh, the letters to Lucilius with this letter on time. It's really compelling. And uh, he's reiterating a lot of these uh, ideas about time, how valuable it is, and how you shouldn't let your time slip away, and how you should value it deeply, because it's really the only thing that you have in the end. It seems to be such an important point and a, a very easy idea to forget. Any strategies that, that come to mind for you of, of maybe how that, this idea has helped you in, in daily life, David? I'm not sure that I've been uh, entirely virtuous in this respect because I do waste time sometimes. Um, but what I try to do actually is um, I try to work on projects that are meaningful. And when I do that, then I always feel that I'm making a very, very good use of my time. Mm. If I'm working on something that, you know, has something to do with like the deeper aspects of life, it's meaningful, uh, then I always feel like that's time well used rather than just doing, you know, sort of like idle tasks and shuffling papers around and yeah. running around without a destination, which was one of Seneca's metaphors. But, you know, wh one of the things I mentioned in the book is that Seneca was like a proto-psychologist. And he had this incredible insight into human nature. And so when he's talking about people wasting time, you know, he's looking at it through his uh, psychological glasses. And he even uh, talks about things that we talk about today, like work workaholism, people who are workaholics. And uh, because they're working all the time, they don't have any happy memories of the past because they're always worried about the future. And then finally, they reach retirement age, and they've only learned how to be a workaholic in life. And so oftentimes, you hear these stories about um, someone who will retire, and because they haven't developed any outside interests, they just die. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, uh, their entire life was devoted to work. And Seneca talks about this explicitly. Uh, he talks about all of these things, and he's, he's, talking to someone, you know, saying, uh, you know, what makes you think that you'll be able to really retire and have a happy life when you're 50 or 60? You don't even know that you'll live that long for sure. And yeah. so he was, he was very aware of all of these issues that people are, are facing now. In fact, the backstory to the, the letters to Lucilius is that Lucilius was the governor of uh, Sicily he was a good friend of uh, Seneca's, and he had achieved like fame, fortune, and status in life, but he found it to be meaningless, and he actually approached Seneca as a philosophical mentor to help him sort his life out and how to uh, you know, transition away from this uh, position, how he could retire and lead a more meaningful life. So, and he was constantly worried about money as well, which is quite funny because he was probably quite wealthy. Yeah. But these are concerns that people have today. Um, in terms of human nature, nothing has changed at all. We live in a world that's much more technologically advanced. But in terms of our inner psychology, we're just really exactly the same as the people in Seneca's time. 
so interesting to to read some of his writing from 2000 years ago it it reads just like it was written today uh i wanted to ask this this book this breakfast with seneca how long have you been kicking around this this idea i live uh, actually in southern europe in uh, sarajevo i used to live in, in michigan in the united states and i moved here about 11 years ago and I had started thinking about it at that time because uh, I had to get rid of a lot of my belongings. I had like thousands of books, so I could only bring a few. It was wow. uh, a bit sad in a sense. But um, I had become very interested in Stoicism at that time, and I thought I would probably write a book about Stoicism. So I made sure before moving over here to you know, get all of the available Stoic texts and, you know, the, the good quality works on, on Stoicism. So I've been thinking about it for, you know, quite some time. It just, it seemed like a, uh, you know, uh, a good thing to do uh, at the time I, I started working on it, which was really like about three years ago, because by that point, um, there had been some very good popular books, say like on Marcus Aurelius uh, by Donald Robertson and Epictetus by Massimo Pellucci, and no one had uh, taken on the other, you know, one of the big three, Roman Stoic Seneca. So I, I thought that uh, this was a project that I really wanted to undertake. Glad that you did. I have a question of, of this idea, as Seneca says, knowing which port you're headed to, you know, if you don't, you know, no wind is favorable. The idea of you embarked on this huge undertaking, massive amount of uh, of writing from from Seneca. How did you, you know, stay on the path of you know little by little getting to towards the completion of, of this project, but also as Seneca talks about staying in in the moment and living in the right now that seems to be such a challenging idea right right well i think i totally failed at that actually (laughs) 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 i mean in a sense because i got so absorbed in the research and the writing and of course um i have a family a wife and a son and there's some fun stories about my son in the book about how uh, you know, we tested out some stoic ideas together and things like that. But it was very, it was a very enjoyable process, and a lot of uh, the writing itself took place during the pandemic. So, uh, I did spend a lot of time with my family. You know, I have a office where I was working on the book, and everyone else was locked down, so we were together. And we would go out when we could. Um, but it did totally consume my life. I, you know, I'll be honest about that. And uh, uh, it was a bit stressful at times, but very satisfying. The, the weird thing is when you're working that intensely on something and then you finish it and then you come back to the real world. That could, I, I found that to be a little... Uh, that created a little bit of psychological disequilibrium, mm. actually, because I had been so concentrated on this work, and then I come back to the world, and you know, it's this 
strange world where, you know, we're still dealing with COVID and things like that. So it took me a little time to uh, adjust to that. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting. It seems like, you know, what Seneca talks about of most people are wandering aimlessly it sounds like that was definitely not you. You you had a you had a port. You were you know in it with both feet, um, but I'm sure it sounds like there was this polarity of coming back to the the present moment. You know, realizing that the the future is is not necessarily guaranteed, or you know, this idea of not planning what's in in fortune's hands. Um, Right. Interesting. Well, it was actually it was uh, <clears throat> it was an amazingly good time to write a book on Seneca because he talks about adversity. Yeah. And you know, Marcus Aurelius lived during a plague as well. And uh, compared to earlier plagues, this pandemic is uh, you know quite inconsequential, really. Like the Black Death in the Renaissance killed 60% of the population. So wow. um, we're quite lucky that compared to some of these earlier plagues, it's been quite mild. I mean, that doesn't mean that people don't suffer from it and uh, don't have fears or experience anxiety because all those things are real and people die from it as well. But just in a kind of quantitative sense, uh, it could be much, much worse than it is. But it seemed like uh, it was an ideal uh, setting in which to write this book because Seneca wrote about how to deal with adversity. And because of the pandemic, a lot of people ended up developing an interest in Stoicism. In fact, during the first wave of the pandemic, uh, when the lockdowns occurred, the sales of Seneca's letters from a Stoic increased like 700%. Obviously, people do find Seneca to be helpful, you know, in in terms of learning about how to, you know, face adversity. As you mentioned around the pandemic, fear and death, uh, that's a particular topic I I wanted to spend a little bit of of time on with you. And Seneca said, as you write in the book, first, free yourself from the fear of death, then free yourself from the fear of poverty. It seems to be such an important lesson that shows up in many different traditions, this idea. But, you know, how do you, how do you think of, uh, about that today, this, this fear and, uh, and, and getting, getting over that? Well, it's really interesting. Um, maybe maybe um, I could talk just a little bit about the Stoic view of the emotions first. Yeah. which is not very well understood by most people because um, the, the Stoics uh, didn't have, for example, you have this uh, stereotype of, you know, Stoic, a Stoic being someone who suppresses their emotions and having a stiff upper lip. And that's not true at all. Uh, Marcus Aurelius, you know, wept in public at the death of his friends and things like that. So, uh, and they talked, and said that a Stoic, you know, it's, it's, it's not like a rock that doesn't have any feelings. Um, but what makes it uh, difficult to understand, you know, at least when you're first exposed to it, is that we have one word, emotions. 
And when the Stoics thought about emotions, they actually had four different types of emotions. So it's kind of like Eskimos have like, what, 50 words for snow. So they had a much more detailed and nuanced view of uh, emotion. And the the only kind of uh, emotions that the Stoics uh, were against were what they called pathe or passions. And those are extreme negative emotions that uh, are violent or cause you to lose the ability to to reason, and they're based on incorrect opinions or judgments. But the primary emotion for the Stoics was actually love, because it's love that creates human fellowship, friendship. Um, it allows us to see other human beings as, uh, you know, kindred spirit and Without love, the Stoics said there would be no society because actually all of our social structures are uh, extrapolations of, of the type of affection that we have for other people. So we form these social institutions. So love is the foremost uh, emotion for the Stoics. And then the next category uh, I translate as natural feelings, which you could also translate as instincts. And those are just natural emotional reactions that people have. There there are no judgments associated with them. They're just like instinctive, you know, uh, responses. For example, if someone has a fear of speaking or, for example, if someone sneaks up behind you and uh, claps their hands, you're going to jump. People have fears of heights, you know, snakes, things like that. Those are all just natural human feelings, and they don't have any, uh, you know, moral value attached to them. They're things that everyone experiences, including a Stoic sage. So no one is immune from them. They're just a natural part of life. And then there are the extreme negative emotions, the pathé. Those are the ones the Stoics uh, opposed uh, because they basically had a very negative impact on people's characters. And then there are good emotions, and those are um, emotions uh, also based on judgments, but they're not based on false opinions, but correct rational judgments, and they can result in feelings of happiness and joy and things like that. So... The worst emotion for Seneca was anger because it's the most powerful. And the way that anger comes about, according to Seneca and the Stoics, is a three-step process. First of all, there's a feeling, um, which would be like a natural feeling that maybe I've been harmed or something. And then what happens is that the the mind applies a judgment to that and says, uh, I've been harmed, and I should therefore seek out revenge on someone. And if you accept those two opinions or judgments, it's almost guaranteed that you'll fall into a rage and lose control of your your mind. Seneca referred to anger as being a temporary form of insanity. And um, the Stoic view is that these extreme negative emotions, they're based on false judgments. So what you can do is you can learn how to... Uh, deconstruct them. And so to go back to the question you raised about, say, like like uh, death and poverty, well, 
the way a stoic would look at it is that, um, you know, this all goes back to uh, what Epictetus said. It's not things that upset us. It's our opinions or judgments about things. And there's really nothing terrible about da for a number of reasons. For one, one thing, once we die, we're not even going to know that we're dead probably. So it's not going to impact us. But um, what the Stoics would say is that you have to uh, intellectually deconstruct the judgments that are giving rise to these emotions. And one of the things that, for example, Seneca would point out is that death is just a natural part of life and it's part of fate. And when we enter into life, when we were born, there are certain things that are fated to happen to us. And one of them is that because of the order of the universe in which we live, we're fated to die. And so it's just a natural part of life. It's not something that um, you should be concerned about. One of the things that I love about the Stoics, um, which I discovered when I was working on this book, is that every single one of the Roman Stoics said that when you're approaching death on your deathbed, the proper attitude to have is a sense of gratitude mm. to the universe for having you know received this gift of life. And they all said that, uh, Marcus Aurelius, Seneca, Epictetus. And Epictetus said, uh, when I'm dying, um, I want to celebrate the fact that I was part of this great festival of life and that I had a chance to study the deep order and beauty of the universe. And let me be thinking writing and speaking these kinds of thoughts when I'm dying. So that seems to me to be proof of someone who has uh, lived a life that is truly worth living so that when you reach the end of your life, you don't have all these regrets about how you could have been a better person or how you could have done something differently, but to have a sense of gratitude that you were given this uh, you know, incredible gift to uh, be part of the human community and experience, uh, you know, the mysteries of the universe. How did this idea of meditating on your mortality being an important concept and lesson connect with you maybe early on? You, as you said, you've been interested in ancient philosophy for a very long time. Um, you know, many people that don't have similar interests, maybe don't even hear a, a lesson around that. The idea of that being a such an important concept that shows up in all of these different different traditions. How did that connect with you early on? Right. Well, I think I think it really uh, goes back to Socrates. So, um, I, I certainly encountered this idea when I was a teenager because I had read like uh, the early dialogues you know, with Socrates in them that Plato wrote. And, you know, there's the famous one where he's facing his death. And he says that philosophy itself is a preparation for death. And, <clears throat> of course, it sounded very good. But I think that, I think I did have some understanding of the value of it, you know, back then, you know, even when I was a kid. But I think now uh, it's easier to, you know, grasp it more deeply because, um, our time is limited, and so one of the reasons that you want to uh, every now and then think about your own mortality is because you do have a limited amount of time left, so you want to make good use of it. Yeah. And it also makes you uh, appreciate your life 
much more one of so this uh, practice of uh, remembering your death or remembering the fact that you'll die memento more it's a uh, it's an aspect of what the stoics called the uh, premeditation of adversity and so you contemplate like negative things that could happen to you in advance you know just for a moment and that removes uh you know the uh sting of them you know should they actually happen and one of the uh benefits of doing this is that it makes you realize how many things in life we actually take for granted mm. so there's a story in the book where uh it was like during one of the waves of the pandemic and i picked up my son at school and he uh, came out of school wearing a mask you know along with maybe 15 other students and took i took his hand and we were walking across the street and uh to be honest with you th there was a lot of uh, you could actually see panic in the eyes of people in Sarajevo, because we had an incredibly high death rate here, actually, uh, the highest in Europe. And uh, you could see that people were really worried about things. And so I was walking down the street with my son and holding his hand, I could feel its warmth. And I realized that, you know, one day we'll be separated and uh, one of us will die and we won't see each other again. Yeah. So the side effect of that was that i felt an incredible sense of gratitude not only for that moment but also for the remaining time that we have together that's beautiful that's one of the paradoxical aspects of uh, you know some of these stoic practices mm. is that you know it seems like you're you're contemplating adversity but then it makes you realize how lucky you are to have what you have and you feel a sense of gratitude for that. It's interesting. I uh, think about the idea of um, how challenging it is, at, at least for me, I'll speak for myself, to live a, a virtuous life. This uh, quote that probably comes up too often for the, for the listeners by Marcus Aurelius, the, the fruit of this life is a good character and acts for the common good. I think of that idea mm -hmm. of, of fear of death, fear of poverty, really coming into play. I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, a, a few months ago, I'm, I'm driving with my young son in the back who's, who's three years old, and it starts pouring down rain. And there's uh, an individual walking on the side of the road that is just getting poured on by this torrential kind of downpour. My thoughts, I should pull over and give this person a ride to wherever they're going, give them, um, you know, to get out of the rain. Um, not saying everybody should do that. I was just thinking in terms of my perspective, I felt that that was the, the right thing to do. And then you get these thoughts of fear of, well, well, I don't know this person. This person could be violent, could be, you know, all, all of these things. It seems like that the fear of death, fear of poverty, fear of kind of losing something can get in the way of, of maybe that virtuous path or not get in the way, but it can be an obstacle. How do you, how do you think about that? Right. That's a really interesting question. Um, I think it's always good to help, 
help people, but I'm not sure that some of the thoughts that you had, they weren't necessarily irrational. I mean, yeah. So, you know, so, so there is, uh, you know, this question of, you know, what is the best way to help other people? So, for example, if I encounter people who are begging, sometimes I'll buy food for them or give them money. But then some of the people that I run into are uh, professional beggars. And uh, I tend not to uh, be as charitable to them. <laughs> but yeah. I think one of the key ideas in Stoicism is the idea of, you know, the cosmopolis that were part of the the community of all human beings and the way the stoics saw it is that every person has a spark of reason within them and because of that we're part of a universal brotherhood and sisterhood of humanity and in that sense we're all equal because we've all been given the spark of reason now people may you know develop it in different ways and things like that but the stoics were the first philosophical school in the western world to assert this idea of human equality and once you realize that we're all part of a universal brotherhood then you have a moral obligation to help people or contribute to society it's about time for our standard wrap-up question that we ask most guests that we have time for which which is around wisdom maybe how you define or or think about wisdom in daily life david in uh, the stoic view for example you could define wisdom as just knowledge in a sense and developing your intelligence so that you're knowledgeable about things so that you can make sound decisions and uh you know you have the four cardinal virtues and wisdom is really at the head of that but the Stoics thought about it in terms of um, uh, what used to be called prudence. And prudence was sort of like applied practical wisdom. So uh, that's why I think actually the study of uh, Stoicism is so helpful because it helps people to think about things in a practical way and also to look at the kinds of judgments and opinions that they're making because ultimately the kinds of judgments and opinions that you're making about things whether they're true ones or false ones they're going to account for your happiness or suffering so we have to have a view of the world that is in harmony with the world the stoics said actually we have to live in agreement with nature and so They've given us all of these practices that we can use to uh, lead a very fulfilling and happy life, uh, a life that uh, is really worth living in, has depth. And a lot of it just goes back to uh, trying to see things in their true light, not being, uh, not having extreme. Uh, inaccurate judgments about things having accurate judgments and see, seeing things i would say in, in their own their own true light so that's that's the challenge that we have as human beings because if if we're constantly experiencing suffering 
there's probably something wrong with the opinions that we have about the world, and、mm. we might very well be making things out to be worse than they are.、Mm. And maybe connected to that, if I could follow up and have you touch on briefly this idea of in something that's come up ar- around wisdom on the podcast of knowing what is good, virtue, knowing what is bad, vice, and knowing what is indifferent. And you you use、um, the word advantage in place of it seems like indifference. Could you touch on that? The Stoics believed that really、uh, virtue is the only good, and it's because we have virtue or excellent characters that we're able to use things in a good way and also bring goodness into the world. One of the things I really love about Stoicism is that this idea that if you're faced by an adversity or a setback or something terrible happens, let's say、uh, you were driving along.、Uh, In that rainstorm, and rather than just seeing someone who was getting very wet, there was a car accident up ahead, and someone had been seriously injured. So you could get out of your car. It's a terrible situation, but depending on how you respond to that, could bring goodness into the world. And the Stoics believe that no bad, no, no matter how bad any situation is, we can actually. By manifesting virtue and excellence of character, find goodness in it.、Mm-hmm. So I find that to be very inspiring. And、uh, the Stoics they ba- they basically thought that、um, goodness involved our our character, and that all of these external things that people see as being goods、uh, are not exactly goods. They're really advantages. Uh, and they had this technical term for that called like preferred indifference. So、uh, that the reason they said they were indifferent is that they didn't contribute to our actual moral character. Say like、uh, having a beautiful house, having money, a beautiful family, and things like that. But I use the term advantages and disadvantages because it's much easier to understand that. But th- 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 there was a big、uh, criticism there. In Stoicism, of what Aristotle said, because Aristotle said that in order to truly be happy, you have to have external things as well. And of course, we need, you know, to survive, we need things like that and food. But the the Stoics looked at it in a different way, because like Aristotle said that, for example, you needed to have good looks and a certain amount of money and things like that. And The Stoics were actually much more egalitarian than Aristotle because the way that they looked at it is that,、uh, say that you had developed a really excellent character, but now,、uh, and you, you know you had wealth, you had a nice family, but now you're seventy years old and you're on your deathbed. You know, does the fact that you've lost your health, your wealth. And your family, and you're just there alone. Does that make you any less virtuous as a person? And of course, the answer to that is no. And so that's why they focused on this idea that、uh, true goodness、uh, comes from within; it exists within the character, and that you know these external things are indeed valuable. They're advantages, and they're gifts from the universe. But they said that 
we're given all these gifts from the universe, but they're just on loan to us. And at some point we'll have to return them. And I find that to be just a, a stunningly beautiful metaphor because uh, it allows you to appreciate the gifts that we do have, but also realize their impermanence at the same time and, uh, you know, more deeply treasure them because we won't have them forever. Yeah. Well, I love it. Well, I am deeply appreciative of your time, David. This has been great. Where do you point people interested in in learning more about you and, and your work in the world? Mm-hmm. Um, I have a website called stoicinsights.com. Uh, so you can Google that. And if people are interested in reading about my other books, I have a website, davidfeidler.com as well. All right, great. Well, we'll link all of that in the show notes. I highly recommend the the listeners to grab the book, Breakfast with Seneca, and connect with David. So David Feidler, thank you so much for coming on In Search of Wisdom. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. I hope you found something useful. If so, I encourage you to put what you heard into practice. If you're interested in more podcasts, meditations, and courses on the art of living, consider checking out our daily newsletter, Perennial Meditations on Substack. Until next time, be wise and be well.